10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence has started. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. Fifty-two years ago, yesterday, on April 17, 1970, a NASA vehicle landed in the ocean. Inside were three astronauts, Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart, and Fred Hayes. They were the three astronauts aboard Apollo 13, a mission meant to bring the three men to the moon, NASA's third moon landing mission. But after two days in space, en route, an oxygen tank on the mission failed, which resulted in an explosion that almost led to the death of the three astronauts aboard. The story is immortalized in Ron Howard's film Apollo 13, in which Tom Hanks, as Jim Lovell, says easily the most iconic line from any movie about space travel. Houston, we have a problem. Back on Earth, the backup crew for Apollo 13 were doing everything they could to bring those men home, alongside the rest of the NASA engineers assembled. The backup crew consisted of Charles Duke, John Young, and Ken Mattingly. Two years later, almost to the day, those three men would also be en route to the moon on a far more successful mission, Apollo 16, which would bring all three of them to the moon for the first and last time. It's on this day, today, the day this episode comes out, 50 years ago exactly, that Apollo 16 was on the way to the moon. This week is the 50th anniversary of their landing. How these three men got to the moon, their journey through NASA, through Apollo 13, and up to Apollo 16 is the story we are here to tell today. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the astronauts of Apollo 16, how these three men got onto the Apollo 16 mission, how Apollo 13 affected their path, and how the lunar vehicle changed the way we explored the surface of the moon. It is April 11th, 1970. Less than a year before this day, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins piloted human beings to the surface of the moon for the very first time. It had been decades of effort resulting in one of the most staggering engineering achievements in history. In November of 1969, a few months later, Apollo 12 launched, bringing another trio of astronauts to the lunar surface. Apollo 13 was meant to be the next in that lineage, another opportunity for Americans to explore and run experiments on the lunar surface. When the crew of Apollo 13 was announced, the astronauts were Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and a man named Ken Mattingly. Ken Mattingly was born in Chicago in 1936. He moved to Hialeah, Florida as a baby. He grew up most of his life in South Florida, attending high school in Miami before going to Auburn for his college degree. He joined up with the Navy in 1958 at the age of 22 and flew planes for them for many years, including at the old Naval Air Station in Jacksonville. It's from there that a friend put him on the path to NASA. As the first Gemini projects were bringing pairs of pilots into space, Manningly wasn't even involved with NASA as of that point. And, and if it's strange the way that I'm saying Gemini, the word is actually Gemini, but in all of the missions from that time, they called it Gemini. I've talked about it on the show before. My friend Brendan Byrne, who is 
much more knowledgeable about these things. He calls it Gemini, so I call it Gemini. So you'll be hearing that. Just know it's still written like Gemini, like the zodiac sign that I am, but it is actually, for the context of NASA's programs, Gemini. This quote is from Mattingly himself, from an oral history documented by NASA. A friend of Mattingly's apparently invited him to go watch a Gemini launch, but Mattingly had little interest in actually seeing the launch. Here's a quote from him. Quote, I had not been impressed with the space program at this point. I thought that the pictures in the magazines of Mercury and Gemini weren't visually appealing. Airplanes are supposed to be smooth and there's an elegance to them. And these things, I can't imagine how anybody could be interested in that. It just had no appeal. End quote. <laughs> Within a few years, however, Mattingly was struggling with finding his place in the Navy. Instead, he took up being a test pilot for the Air Force, where he met a man named Charles Duke, an instructor at the time that would one day be on Apollo 16 with him. When a new selection process for astronauts opened up in 1965, he and his friends at the Air Force, including Charles Duke, applied for the gig. It was here that he met John Young for the first time. John Young, who would be the third astronaut on Apollo 16, grew up here in Orlando. His childhood home is marked in College Park, a beautiful neighborhood just north of downtown Orlando. I drive by it all the time. I love it. He was already a NASA astronaut, participating in several missions and helping to bring in these new recruits. About meeting John Young, Ken Mattingly said the following, quote, Didn't figure John out that day and didn't do so for a long time after that either. End quote. That tracks with everything I know about John Young. He was a character, to say the least. Quickly, Mattingly was part of the Apollo program that was ramping up. He was supporting the flights from the ground, and he was working in training with the backup crew for Apollo 11. But when it became time for Apollo 13 to be set into motion, Ken Mattingly had the right stuff. He was going to the moon. It was our third trip as a nation, and Ken was going to be flying with one of the best commanders in NASA history, the great Jim Lovell. Jim Lovell, as performed by Tom Hanks in the film Apollo 13, is one of my personal favorite astronauts of all time, and frankly one of my favorite Tom Hanks performances of all time. Jim Lovell was born in Cleveland. He was picked in the second group of astronauts after the original Mercury 7 astronauts. When the Gemini program started, which increased from one astronaut per flight like Mercury to two astronauts per flight, NASA needed more pilots. Lovell was brought in here. He flew Gemini 8, 12, and Apollo 8, which was the first actual NASA flight to get to the moon, even though they didn't land. Being able to successfully get the ship to the moon was part of the project's success, and Lovell was on the crew that achieved that goal. It was also on Apollo 8 that the famous Earthrise photo was taken, one of the most famous images of Earth ever taken. But Apollo 13 was supposed to be the big one for Jim Lovell. After years in the program, Jim Lovell was finally going to land on the moon. With our friend Ken Mattingly by his side as command module pilot and Mississippi-born Fred Hayes as lunar module pilot, the three were to bring Apollo to the moon for the third time. But you know how the story goes. You've seen the movie. Houston, they had a problem. The problems, however, started long before that explosion up in space. They started for Ken Mattingly just a few days before launch. Ken Mattingly wasn't even on the vessel when the oxygen tank exploded even though he was supposed to be. 
This oral history from Ken Mattingly that I, I keep referencing was recorded in 2001, and it is a treasure trove of incredible quotes, but especially about the days leading up to Apollo 13. Ken Mattingly records what happened to him that prevented him from getting on that mission. Here's what he says, quote, Somewhere in there, I don't remember all the details, we found out that a family had gone to a picnic with Charlie and his family over the weekend, one of their kids had the measles, and Charlie was considered exposed. So they said, it's just a precaution, but it's no big deal, because we can determine your susceptibility, and so we'll just take some blood, and then just kind of watch it. We were sufficiently quarantined. End quote. The Charlie in that story is Charlie Duke. Ken goes on to say that he got even more blood tests. He even asked his mom if he had had measles before when he was a child. She said she wasn't sure. So here's where the problem lies. This is the key detail of the story that I want you to understand. When they were doing Apollo missions, there were always two crews in place. There was the main crew, and then there was a backup crew. The main crew for Apollo 13 was Lovell, Hayes, and Ken Mattingly. Remember, Ken Mattingly. The backup crew was John Young, Charles Duke, and Jack Swigert. So each trio trained with each other. If something happened to the main crew, like, for example, someone getting sick, then the backup crew would step in. They would just replace them. The first trio would be replaced by the second trio. But an exception was made here, because Ken Mattingly was the only person on the crew who had no immunity to the measles, they discovered. He could not go into space. If Mattingly got sick mid-flight, the whole thing would fall apart. Charles Duke, who exposed Mattingly, was on the backup crew, but he was exposed. He, he was the one who started this whole problem, so he couldn't go. So instead of sending the entire backup crew, which Charles Duke was on, they simply switched Ken Mattingly out with his replacement. Mattingly was supposed to be the command module pilot, which meant he was supposed to stay on the ship while the other two went to the moon. But because Mattingly might get the measles, they replaced him with Jack Swigert. Swigert of Colorado had three days to prepare for the mission. Three days to go from backup crew to main crew with two men he had not been training with. According to Ken Mattingly, he didn't even find out in person. He found out over the radio. He went out flying to take his mind off of things and then, quote, I'm driving up the road, turned the radio on, and they interrupt the news announcement that this afternoon NASA has announced that they have changed and substituted Jack Swigert for me. I just kind of pulled over to the side of the road and sat there for a while. If this is a practical joke, it's really well done, but I don't think this is a joke, end quote. It wasn't. He was driving out around the Florida roads when he learned he wouldn't be going to the moon. Ken Mattingly was on the backup crew with Duke, who got him sick, and Young, who he apparently didn't quite understand as of yet. These three, Mattingly, Duke, and Young, would remain on Earth, but they would eventually go to the moon together, two years later. They didn't know that at the time, and we'll get there in a moment. Two days into Apollo 13's flight, Swigert went to work on the cryogenic tanks, but, quote, an exposed wire in the second oxygen tank ignited a fire that led to the blast that would rewrite Apollo 13's mission, end quote. The rewrite was that Apollo 13 was no longer about exploration. It was about getting these three astronauts home. The story of how it was achieved is a feat of engineering and communication that the brain cannot even fathom. Along with the help of the backup crew on Earth, including Ken Mattingly, Apollo 13 was able to redirect its course and bring the three men safely back to Earth. Nothing short of a miracle. 
I've watched the movie so many times, and I'm still racked with tension every time I watch it. They get home. They do. But that fear throughout, the tension is so, so intense. The amount of creativity that brings them home, it's its amazing. It's so much fun to watch. If by chance you're listening to this and you've never seen Apollo 13, fix that immediately. That movie is amazing and, well, I've already spoiled the ending. They get home. But that is not the end of our story. This episode is not the story of Apollo 13. It's the story of Apollo 16 and her crew, which also just happens to be those three men who remained on Earth as Apollo 13 made its way home. But Apollo 13 affected Apollo 16 in more than just its crew. The Smithsonian Magazine says the following, quote, The danger of a fatal accident had amplified questions about why additional moon voyages were necessary. NASA had canceled Apollo 20 before Apollo 13 lifted off, and the agency called off Apollo 18 and 19 after the near tragedy of Apollo 13, end quote. On top of that, funding had been cut, so these last two missions, Apollo 16 and 17, were the last ones. They had to count. We'll talk about the final Apollo mission, Apollo 17, later this year. It was our last ever trip to the moon, a drought we hope to be ending very soon. But Apollo 16 was the last chance for these three men assigned to it to make it to the moon. But Young and Duke, when they arrived, would not just walk on the moon, they would drive on it. You see, the lunar roving vehicle had been built for quote-unquote low-gravity vacuum, and by the time Apollo 15 was on the way, it was ready to be used. But it had to be tested, of course. They had to make sure that the lunar rover vehicle would work. Nowhere would there be a proper low-gravity situation, of course, but it needed to sustain through the proper terrain of the lunar surface. They needed to simulate some version of what it would feel like to drive it on the moon, right? Well, they found a way to test it in Florida. At the Kennedy Space Center on our east coast, they had created the closest facsimile to the moon that they could. Quote, to make the trainer's chassis testable on Earth, it was made six times stronger than the actual flight unit. Astronauts practiced driving it on what they called the quote-unquote rock pile, a simulated lunar surface at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. End quote. It is so comical to me to imagine a fake lunar surface in Florida. This is, this is as good as they could get, right? They had to create this fake little rocky surface so that they could have something even close to the moon in the middle of an extraordinarily flat and not very rocky state. They also built a structure in Houston where they could drive the vehicle as it was suspended by cables, making it as lightweight as it theoretically would be on the moon. To get an even more clear sample of how the terrain would affect the rover, they drove it in the desert over rocks as well. This vehicle in usage would allow the astronauts to explore more of the moon's surface, see more than they had ever seen before. Apollo 15 had used it once already, but now it was Apollo 16's turn. And it was finally Ken Mattingly's turn to get to the moon, even though he wouldn't go down to the surface. On April 16th, Apollo 16 launched. Four days later, despite a few minor issues on the way, on April 20th, Young and Duke made it down to the surface, with Mattingly back up in the command module. About the mission, Mattingly said the following, quote, If you were going to devise a program for personal enjoyment, the only thing you'd change in the way things worked out for me is I would have had another flight to go land on the moon. Nothing could take the place of being there, but you wouldn't want to skip the lunar part to go to the surface. You need both, because the lunar piece, especially solo, was probably more sense of exhilaration. 
I can't explain it, but it was really, really something. End quote. Now, I'm going to take you on a little sidebar here. There is a singer I love, a folk singer named John Craigie, and he has a song called Michael Collins, which is the name of the man who stayed in the command module around the moon as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went to the moon's surface, the first two people to ever set foot on the moon's surface. Michael Collins remained in the capsule, and this song by John Craigie is about what it must feel like to be up there, to know that these two people are making history and, and that their names will be more remembered than yours. You didn't walk on the moon. You brought them there. And uh, something about that has always really been uh, bittersweet to me, melancholic to me. There's a line in that song by John Craigie where he says, Sometimes you take the fame, sometimes you sit backstage, but if it weren't for me, then boys would still be there. Sometimes you take the fame, sometimes you sit backstage, but if it weren't for me, them boys would still be there. I think about that a lot. I especially have been thinking about it as I've been writing about Ken Mattingly. How much of Ken Mattingly's life, when you think about Apollo 13 and Apollo 16, was him not getting to do the flashy thing, not getting to do the the history-defining thing. He wasn't on Apollo 13. He was not on the moon's surface. But those missions bringing those men home on 13 and and bringing the men home from the lunar surface. Those missions would not have been completed without Ken Mattingly's help. So I think that that is the perfect way to describe Ken Mattingly. Sometimes you take the fame, sometimes you sit backstage, but if it weren't for Ken, who knows what would have happened. And to hear that he loved orbiting the moon, man, that makes me happy. Ken seemed to love it. I mean, come on, think about it. He was flying around the moon. He was in a vehicle that was orbiting the moon. That is amazing. Down on the surface, however, our old buddy John Young, ever the character, had found his own way to leave a mark. Not only was he driving around the lunar rover, but they were using the film camera that they had brought to record their behaviors. John Young took a drive on the lunar rover in an event that has since been dubbed the Grand Prix a reference to the race, and as far as I can tell, also a reference to a movie from the time that Ken Mattingly was a big fan of. I can't tell if those two are actually connected, but there was this movie called Grand Prix, and in the oral history, Ken talks about how much he enjoys it, but I can't really tell if it's actually connected to John Young driving what has since been dubbed the Grand Prix. The Grand Prix's entire purpose was to test how well the lunar rover could drive on the surface, and clearly, I'll play some audio for you, clearly, they were having a total blast. You can hear John Young cracking up as Charles Duke films him, and, and his vehicle is just bouncing around the gravity of the moon. It would it would hit these little craters, and then they would pop up the front wheels or the back wheels, and then John would just be kind of floating midair, and then would crash back down. It's, it's great. There's a wonderful video you have to watch. I'll include it in the episode description of John Young just whipping around the lunar surface on the rover. It's so funny. I cannot recommend that you watch it enough. They want four minutes worth, John. Buzz a minute and five. Then you can do it twice more. Surely. Okay, turn sharp. <laughs> I have no desire to turn sharp. <laughs> okay, here's a sharpie. Hey, that's great. I mean, what they're doing is strange, and they know it's strange. Duke with his camera, John on his little car, having a great time on the moon. It was 50 years ago this upcoming Thursday on April 21st that John did his Grand Prix on the moon. 
I might be minimizing the mission a little bit to say that Apollo 16 just did this driving. They actually did a lot more really interesting stuff. The astronauts brought back loads of rocks from the surface that revealed so much about the geology of the moon. And they also brought an instrument called the Far Ultraviolet Camera Slash Spectrograph. Camera Slash Spectrograph. It was brought to the moon aboard Apollo 16, and it actually remains there to this day. It's this big clunky metal thing. It hasn't actually taken photos since Apollo 16 left, but apparently it's still there. There are many photos that, that have not seen the light of day. You'd have to request them from NASA, but there is a photo that has been released that is of Earth, taken by this spectrograph that reveals the ultraviolet light around Earth. It's just stunning. It's so interesting how a scientific image could be as beautiful as this image is. This, this instrument was taking incredible ultraviolet images. Other readings and measurements were taken on the surface, and after three days, it was time to return to Earth. They made it back on April 27th, splashing down safely. The penultimate mission to the moon was a success, and the backup crew of Apollo 13, the main crew of Apollo 16, was to thank. Apollo 16 was everything that they could have hoped for. Charles Duke would retire from NASA a few years later. John Young would pilot the first space shuttle mission less than a decade after returning from Apollo 16. And our friend Ken Mattingly commanded two separate space shuttle missions, piloting both the incredible Columbia space shuttle on his first mission and the absolutely beautiful Discovery space shuttle on his second mission. Duke and Mattingly are actually still alive today, both retired from NASA. Florida's own John Young passed away in 2018. But the footage of him roaring around on the moon and all of the other... Amazing Tales of John Young is kind of the best way to memorialize him. He was the funniest astronaut, at least by my measure. I have to admit something to you now. A lot has been changing around me. Work opportunities, etc. The usual adult things. And sometimes those things can feel very overwhelming, especially when you feel like you've been dealt a hand of cards and you have to play them, positive or otherwise. But I am comforted a lot by Ken Mattingly's story. He was dealt a hand that he couldn't play with. He lost his chance to go to the moon. But many people believe that because Mattingly was at home when Apollo 13 launched, he was able to successfully get them back with no fatalities. If you've seen the movie, Gary Sinise, who I love from Forrest Gump, plays Ken Mattingly in Apollo 13. And if you're like me, you watch that movie and as wonderful as the entire cast is, Ken Mattingly is kind of the hero, for me at least. Uplink completed. Yeah, that's more like it. Oh, okay, let's go. Let's take a look at your hands. How we doing? Let's go. All right. You got her back up, Ken. Boy, I wish you were here to see it. I'll bet you do. All the work that he does to keep the astronauts safe, I mean, that's the movie for me, personally. Something cosmic, something we can't quite explain, put all the pieces in place. And in the end, Ken saw the moon. He kept an eye out for the safety of his colleagues from above on Apollo 16, just as he had looked out for the crew of Apollo 13 from below two years earlier. About that flight around the moon... The long hours spent orbiting while Young and Duke ran experiments, Ken Mattingly has this final word to say. Quote, 
I can neither explain why nor explain the sensation, but the exhilaration of flying that thing solo was as... I desperately wanted to go down and land, but boy, you really need both." End quote. He goes on to say that he wishes he could remember more of the things he's seen so he could better describe them. I can't speak for you, listener, but it is a comfort enough to me to know that Ken Mattingly saw whatever he saw out there, even if he can't describe it perfectly. I personally have never felt the draw to go to the moon. I'm just glad to know that somebody has. And I'm glad to know that one of them was our pal, South Florida's own, Ken Mattingly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, I've talked about space a lot on this show. I love space travel, space history. Go listen to some of the episodes about space and NASA from this show, from the past. I'll include some links in the description. You will see a name popping up a lot in those episodes. Our pal, Brendan Byrne. Brendan Byrne hosts a podcast called Are We There Yet? for WMFE here in Orlando. He is the best space reporter in the business. His podcast is a must listen. I listen to it constantly. I learn so much about it. He is constantly covering the story of how NASA will get us to Mars. It is such an amazing show. Give him a follow on all social medias. I'll include a link to his show. Even though Brendan wasn't in this episode, his podcast and his work always inspires me to write more NASA stories. So thank you to Brendan Byrne. Go listen to his show. Give him some support. His show is the best. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really means a lot to me, and it helps the show become more visible to those who have not found it yet. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All right, next week is one of my favorite types of episodes that I get to do, which is I get to compile some stories that were left on the cutting room floor from this season and tell them to you. I've got a very interesting correction from actually last season. No, the season before that, the summer season that I'm excited to tell you about. It's about frogs. You're going to love it. I've also got some extra clips from interviews that I've done this season that you just have to hear. Some things that couldn't quite fit into the episodes themselves, but reveal so much about the fascinating histories that we've talked about this year so far. So tune in next week for that episode. You're going to love it. Can't wait for it. And then after that, the finale of this season. Until next Monday, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you next Monday.